You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. What's this going to be about? Oh, uh, well, part of it's about you. As far back as I can remember, Dad engaged with the world in ways that inspired, excited, and uh, sometimes confused me. He's been the kind of person who was able to keep these profound secrets. He doesn't lie. He just doesn't tell you what's going on. It's a lot of omission. You see really clearly how he learned how to live double lives, mm-hmm. right? Because... It was so much part of his primary relationship, which was to his mother. You mean you can't go back and say I had a horrible childhood, that's why I'm doing all this? Huh? But these are the things that children don't need to know about their dad. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with filmmaker Lynn Sachs. Ms. Sachs has a program of films available on the Criterion channel this month, including the feature that you just heard the preview of, film about a father who, as well as seven other films that are out there on the Criterion channel. Of course, I started off by asking Ms. Sachs how she got interested in filmmaking. I was a briefly president of the, our film club and we started showing films like Mr. Hulo's Holiday and I just thought it was goofy and and kind of intellectual at the same time which was a had a big appeal for me but at the same time I didn't even consider making movies as being a life's work at that point because for the most part I had only seen Hollywood films and straight ahead documentaries I was writing poetry. I was taking a lot of photographs. I was into painting. I was into like a lot of art forms, but I wasn't someone who aspired to be a movie maker. 
But then I was in Paris, like in the early 1980s, doing my junior year abroad, and I discovered the films of Chantal Ackerman and Marguerite Duras. And I said, oh my goodness, first of all, women make films and they make these really personal films that don't follow a formula or they don't have to be 90 minutes. They don't have to be stories and all the things that weren't really appealing to me, especially straight, more conventional narrative. So that was a really a big revelation to me. I'd also say... When I was in college, I saw Fassbender's films. They were very popular. I couldn't get enough of them. And he kept making them. I mean, new things. And, and they were raw. And they were compelling. And I thought the characters were like nothing I'd ever seen before. I would say if you asked me which kind of narrative, storytelling kinds of films first sparked me, it would probably be Fassbender. Rainer yeah. As far as I know, you don't tend to make a lot of narrative films, though. Most of your stuff is experimental. No, I don't. The closest is a film called Wind in Our Hair, which uh, is actually going to be on the Criterion. And, and it was called inspired by a Julio Cortazar story called In the Game. But other than that, I'm not a narrative filmmaker. And that's not even really, an, it's a hybrid because it's, it's a film that looks at, at Argentina during a very difficult time. When, there were food shortages and a lot of protesters, all these protests in Argentina. And, but it was through the, the eyes of these four girls, including my daughters. How do you find the subjects for your films? How do you determine I'm going to make a movie about this? That's a kind of playful engagement with curiosity and with ideas and with the notion of filmmaking, giving you a license to do whatever the heck you want. Like you say, oh, I want to find out more about a particular place or why things work in the way that they do or a film you issue your license to talk to your dad all the time and to ask him questions that he might find a little irritating or prying but you still keep you keep trying to do it so it's sort of like I was very upset about the attack on the US Capitol on January 6th so I made a fil- a short film in response to that I'm very interested in politics and like the conversation between art and politics. So those are other reasons that I explore certain kinds of ideas. I think the first film of yours that I ever saw was Investigation of a Flame. I saw that at the um, Senate Theater in Baltimore years and years ago. I can't believe you said that. That was the premiere. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Because uh, I haven't been to Baltimore for a few years. I actually was there in 2018 for the 50th anniversary of the Catonsville 9 action. But I didn't go to get to go over to the senator. But when you were there, they created a, like a, a, a cement block on the sidewalk. And I have this picture of, it's me, I'm there pulling off this satin piece of fabric and my daughters are there. And they were, that was in 2001, actually. And because uh, this is the 20th anniversary. So that was the spring of 2001. And before 9-11, what happened after that? Yeah, and a lot of, you might remember a lot of the members of the Catonsville 9 came. And that was such a big deal for me. And actually, there was a, to my mind, fairly significant article in the New York Times about the film. Because I guess someone from the, the festival had pitched it. 
but they wrote the man who wrote about it. He was named Francis X. Kleins, and I, I'm not sure if he's still alive. He wrote about it in the national section, not in the cultural section, because I think he was interested in in the story of the Berrigans and civil disobedience. So he made my day. Well, it is very interesting how politics have informed your work over the years. I really appreciate that. That made my relationship to Baltimore, where I lived for three, we lived for three years, extremely different because I was hanging out with some of the most radical 80-year-olds. It was just very, very special. And even down to like, there's a soup kitchen in Baltimore that's still uh, very active. And it's a Catholic worker soup kitchen. And it was formed by the um, Catonsville non-support group. So those were the people who wanted to do an anti-war action but didn't want to go to jail for it. Now, whenever people ask me for for clips from that film or like they want to license sections of that, I say, okay, but you have to make a donation to be the house. So that happened. That just happened like recently, (laughs) actually today. How did this program with Criterion happen? We started having a conversation, actually, a man named Steve Holmgren used to be a programmer at Union Docs here in New York. And he kind of introduced me to Penelope Bartlett, who's now the the programmer at Criterion. And she blew my mind. She watched so many of my films. And I actually think the selection was astonishing because she came up with the idea of of building something around film about a father who, but then she wanted to show my film, The Washing Society. You know, it's about labor and laundromats and urban life and service industry. And it's very experimental documentary. And it's the performance oriented and commentary on contemporary urban life, really. But she decided to pair it with a film they, they've had for, I guess, a little while called Clotheslines which is a classic feminist film on women and labor and laundry from the 70s. She's just a very, very inventive programmer, I think. And they're doing amazing things now at the the channel. You know, really, really inventive ways of thinking about not just introducing like a new filmmaker, but thinking about their whole collection and how different things connect with other things. It must be interesting to have someone go through your body of work and say, these are the films that we're going to pick and just be like, well, why those? Of all the things that I did, why these ones? Sometimes when people want to show my work, they'll say, what would you suggest? And I just shrink at that because I really want to see the work through their experience, through their eyes as an audience. I, I want to see the things that surprise them. Like the film Wind in Our Hair, I think she chose because my daughters are in it and and hopefully for other reasons, but she was interested in how I work with family members or the film Which Way's East, which I made with my sister who was living in Vietnam in the 90s. So it's our perspective as women who were children in the 60s and sort of experienced Vietnam through Walter Cronkite and through that and how you could really visit that country for the first time and and see it not just as a place of war, but other things. I'm really grateful to her for giving some of my older films, like A Fresh Look, but she also is showing three films from the last year and a half or so. so. You've got so much stacked against you, making experimental films, short films. It can't be easy to be making these movies, and it's remarkable that you've been able to 
maintain and sustain a career for all of these decades is just really admirable. I could answer that in two ways. One is that I don't know if I could make a traditional character-driven, which they often are, documentary. In fact, I was on a panel at the Traverse City Film Festival. Do you live in Michigan? I do. Yep. So that's Michael Moore's festival, baby. And I was there. Actually, my film, Your Day is My Night, won Best Experimental Film at the Traverse City Film Festival. And I did say to Michael, how many other experimental films are here? But he was really appreciative of it. So I was on a panel there on documentary and the MC started off by saying, well, we know that all good documentaries begin with a character. And I said, oh, that doesn't interest me at all. I don't, I, I would not make it that way. And I would not go into a situation and say, which of you is the most charismatic person? I'm going to let you come to the fore and be my character because that's really following literature. And I love literature, but I'm not trying to emulate it. I will say regarding the short film that it's kind of in its prime right now, maybe because of the short attention span or maybe because of streaming. People are a bit more oriented to looking at a program of films and also taking risks with their viewing. We, we rarely use the word risk with like the reception of media, but it makes people feel insecure to think that something might have a form that is unfamiliar to them. People who say, well, I don't read poetry because you have to read it over again to really get it. And sometimes that happens with experimental films in particular, but with streaming, you usually get a chance to do that. (laughs) And you might say it's worthwhile looking at an eight-minute film twice. (laughs) I'm very curious how the pandemic affected you because I was glad to see that you were still making movies during that time. The pandemic for filmmakers was horrible, but it also made us shift in some extremely interesting and revealing ways. So our theatrical spaces were closed. Our communal spaces were closed. But we were able to show our work to audiences from around the world. I have learned more about the meaning of the word geoblock and regional than I ever would have before. And the how that gives you the opportunity to interact with new communities. For example, a group of film enthusiasts from India came to me through Instagram and said, we want to create an event around film about a father who we want people to have to apply to be part of this event. It, going to be a little bit like a seminar or a salon. I decided I didn't like either of those words, so we called it a cinema garage. There were 18 people from Mexico, Russia, the UK, and India, and Indonesia, who spent a weekend with me. They watched the film, and then they all made this their own work in response to the film. Some of it was academic, some of it was creative, some of it was playfully hybrid. Would that ever have happened in any other context? And then also in production, I made the film Girl is Presence, which which is part of the Criterion Channel's octet of films, as if someone called it, and of my work. And I made the entire film on a table. Like that was my location, our table in our house. Both of my daughters were home. They're adults, but they were home living with us last spring. 
and 2020. And um, one of them, my daughter Noah, is in the film wearing gloves because that was kind of a part of our life. It was a part of our lives in May of 2020. So it was Purell. And so I couldn't just go to any, any place in New York or elsewhere. Those limitations created some super interesting interpretations of, of the moment. We all thought about the frame of the window and looking out. You could also just stay inside, but not just make home movies, which I love home movies, but it was a movie that allowed for an investigation of home. I learned a long time ago not to ask a filmmaker what their favorite film is because each one is special to them. It's like choosing your favorite child. It's got to be very interesting for you to be able to look back at your body of work and also looking forward. Each film has to be so personal to you, especially when you even have your own kids inside of them. It's like you talked about family movies, home movies. It's like you're doing your own home movies plus your art at the same time. If you could right now, you could test me. You could ask me about a year in my life, starting around 1985, and I could tell you which film I make. I was making at that time. So I can mark history, my personal history, by which film I'm working on. And so to me, each of them is quite personal in that way. It's a reflection of what was going on in the world, maybe not in an obvious way, but it has an imprint on the film. And sometimes I'm, I am really exploring a, contem- a situation that, that is going on at that moment, like the attack on the Capitol or the pandemic, you know, some of the recent kinds of things. But they all are aspects of, of how I was living at a certain time. Like I was making Investigation of a Flame because we moved there for three years. And it was, to me, the most interesting way of getting to know the community. I'm going to script the title. Is it epistolary too? Yes. I love that. I thought that was so clever. And the way that you were able to mix that footage of January 6th with Zero for Conduct and Lord of the Flies. I mean, it all just flowed so well. And I really appreciated the message of the film. You know, ever since I've been a parent, I've thought about what it would be like to have a child who did something heinous or about childhood being both this celebration of innocence and a passage by which you go into the world either as a good, per- a kind and good person or as a person who is oriented towards more violent acts. So, for example, when Columbine happened, I immediately thought, what would it be like to be the mother of those boys? In this case, I thought, what would push those people to be so violent? And then I went back to thinking about Jean Vigo and Zero for Conduct and how much I love that. I love the anti-authority impulse of those children in Zero for Conduct. I love that it's a celebration of anarchy. I'm all for anarchy. I made a film about civil disobedience, you know, um, as you know. <laughs> but when civil disobedience goes enough too far to terrorize people and to hurt them, then that's too far. So that liminal space is very interesting to me. Yeah, it, it really hit a chord with me. And that I think is the first time that I've seen someone use that footage in an artistic way since it happened. Yeah, and I chose to, to make it black and white, as was footage from Lord of the Rings. And the footage at the very end of the film, which is from, it's the only footage I shot 
It's a it's an image from the part of Queens, New York, that was hardest hit by the pandemic. And I was interested in showing a grocery store where people were in their masks and their their physical gestures, their presence in a communal space was articulated by the hope of doing the best that they could for each other. Like I wear a mask to prevent myself from being sick, but also to prevent you from being sick and thinking in that altruistic or magnanimous way. And it seemed to be so different from what happened on the January 6th. It just felt like violence for violence sake. How many projects do you have going at a time? Sometimes I have just one. Like when I was making Investigation of a Flame, I was living Investigation of a Flame. And when huh, when I was making Wind in Our Hair, I was actually also making The Last Happy Day, which is in the Criterion Collection. So I, I worked on Wind in Our Hair one day a week for about a year two years. A lot of it was in Spanish and I needed to work with someone. I do speak Spanish, but not well. So I needed to work with someone who hears some of the Spanish and, and kind of um, help me edit it. Actually, right now I'm working on a film which has a title already. I often come up with titles even way before the film is finished and then the film has to reach the title. It's called Every Contact Leaves a Trace. It's kind of the watchword going back to the 19th century of forensic studies. But it interests me as a filmmaker to think about how one person leaves an imprint on another person and how you can visualize that and try to understand it. And so that film really started with the collection of business cards I have, probably around 500. So I'm interested in, I mean, I've been collecting them for decades. So they're like, little mnemonic devices for thinking about the people who pass through your life, but they're also material things. So I'm interested in them, how, what fingerprints they might have on them, but also that they're entry points to story, to people's stories. People I might not know anymore, probably don't like someone from a hardware store or a doctor or a filmmaker. A lot of them are film oriented. So I'm making a, a film that starts with those cards, but then, goes out and it's kind of autobiographical because the only thing those cards have in common is that they were people who passed through life. But then I'm working on two short projects. One is a, actually a commission by a, a music group called Mother, well, by a woman named Christine Leshper. She's like in the music scene in Atlanta. And she asked me to make a short film for a piece of music, kind of like a music video. I've never done that before. She's a really interesting musician. I actually shot that myself in the last week. I try to shoot as much as I can myself, but I don't always. And then I actually shot a film, not personally, I had a cinematographer in the Elmhurst section of Queens with a Filipino-American poet who asked me to do a project. Do you do filmmaking full-time? I teach a lot. I've taught on and off for 25 years. But I'm not currently working at a university, but I, I spend a lot of time working on my films, but I do a lot of visiting artist gigs. Like I'm currently teaching for a couple of weeks at a place called the Flowchart Foundation, which is actually I did it twice this week. Um, it's a poetry foundation created by John Ashbery, the poet. And I'll be teaching this year graduate students in Germany for a few weeks. And then 
I'm doing something at Yale. I'm doing something at Sarah Lawrence. I'm doing something at Northwestern. But they're short term. But it kind of is adding up to as much as teaching every week. And I, I'm maybe maybe I'm done with teaching every week. <laughs> so it's kind of a combination. Do you write poetry as well, or are your films your poems? I do write poetry, and I if you send me your address, I will send you a copy. I have a book that just came out at the end of 2019. It's called Year by Year Poems. I guess since we're doing a podcast, I, the book is dead. You want to see the book? Sure. So this is my first book. Oh, congratulations. It's called Year by Year Poems. And I wrote a poem for every year of my life. And my life started in 1961. So, And it's about the intersection of public events, everything from a war to a snowstorm with very personal perceptions or or interpretations of that. So you'll see like uh, you see it's got all these years. Wow, very good. Like a yearbook almost. Yeah, essentially. And then it's got the original some of the original drafts. And uh, it's published by Tender Buttons Press and it's available from small press distribution. And is there a good place for people to catch up on you and your work? Well the Criterion Channel is one. I have some films on Fandor. So Fandor was around, then it disappeared, then it's coming back. I have films on a streaming service called Ovid, which is all documentary. And then all of my films are both at the Filmmakers Cooperative here in New York, which is an avant-garde collective co-op. It's a co-op. And all of my films are at Canyon Cinema in San Francisco. Are you familiar with Canyon and the Filmmakers Co-op? I used to get their catalog just to kind of pine over the stuff I couldn't see. Yeah. Well, I'm very involved, very, very, very involved with both of those groups. So I was on the board of the Filmmakers Co-op for 17 years, and now I'm on the board of the Canyon Cinema. But we do all the meetings on Zoom because I don't live in California. That's nice. So that really speaks. So you actually had the catalogs from Canyon. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. It just speaks to how long you've been involved in the. Miss X, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. I have enjoyed it. And I've learned a lot about the breadth of your viewing because you you just dropped lots of great information. For example, that you were at the Senator Theater in the spring of 2001. And so was I. And guess what? So was John Waters. Yes, he was. (laughs) 